0: We live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is heart of a heartless world a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon.
1: Hello, my name is Fran Quigley of the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are the sponsor of this podcast, Heart of a Heartless World. Our guest today is Iman Javid, a medical student at the University of Toronto, and really a truly insightful writer on issues including Islam and socialism. If you haven't checked out Iman's writing after you hear this podcast, you're going to want to do so. So I'm excited to have this conversation today, and I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Iman, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. So can you please start off with you telling us a little bit about uh, your faith background?
2: Sure. So uh, I'm Muslim. Um, I've recently wrote an article about Ramadan for um, religious socialism, and um, I'm currently uh, fasting for Ramadan. And so... Um, Just in general, for my background, um, I I am, like I mentioned, that I'm Muslim, and my family tree consists of both uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims, although myself and my immediate background, or my immediate family, are all Sunni. Um, It's my grandmother's side, who is uh, Shia, Um, and we're all from India, so um, prior to being Muslim, at some point we were of Hindu faith. Um, so generally the story of my faith background um, and how it connects to my social and political stances is sort of interesting. Um, and so we can get into
1: Absolutely. that. Absolutely. That's exactly what we, what we <laughs> want to know about. So now I asked you one question before that you, you mentioned your family's from India. How many yeah. generations ago did, did your family uh, come to Canada?
2: My okay. parents are immigrants, okay. both of them. But
1: they are, uh, their family is Muslim back in, in India as well? That's right.
2: So I, I don't have any Hindu relatives right now that I know of.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so, yes, if you, if you would, tell us a little bit about, you know, we, it's a religion and socialism podcast, so we talk about religion first, and we'll talk about socialism now. So, you know, how does your, your, your socialist views you know, where did, where did they come from?
2: Yeah. So, uh, sorry for jumping the gun there a little bit, but, um, um, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's an interesting story and actually it kind of ties back a little bit farther, um, more to the religion side, um, in that I think just reflecting a little bit more on my religious background, um, I think like many of us who are, you know, fortunate enough to be born into a practicing religious family, um I think I spent like much of my life my early life taking my uh taking my Islam for granted you know um and like sure like I went to Sunday school um I prayed I memorized the Quran um mm-hmm. not all of it but parts of it um and you know I was 100% like a mm-hmm. believer in Islam as a child you know I was a Muslim I was a proud Muslim throughout my life um, but I think something clicked in my late teens And that's when, like, I can't really explain in, like, detail, but, you know, you have these moments. um, And that's when I felt like I really started to feel that connection in my heart with, you know, with God and with my faith. Um, And I think that's partly connected to when I started becoming more involved in both the sciences and political activism. Um, And so there's really a synergy between socialism and my political involvement, as well as my science and medical background. Um, so I think it was like, um, in my late teens, um, I started studying more in science, like physics, biology, chemistry. Um, and I think that really like enhanced my belief in God. Um, and really, you know, when you see the wonders of the natural world, it really leads you to, uh, or at least it really led me to, um, you know, believing in a higher power that's kind of coordinating these, these amazing things that we have in the natural world.
1: Well oh, that's really interesting because as you, as you know sometimes the study of the of natural sciences leads folks in a different direction so why why did it lead you to feel more strongly about the presence of a higher power
2: Yeah I mean like I I just don't I honestly I can't even see the alternative um and because when you when you really get into the nitty-gritty of it and you know I was really fortunate that I was able to, you know, go to university and study. I studied molecular biology and biotechnology. Um, and so when you really start to learn about things like viruses and, you know, we might touch on COVID-19 right. later. Um, and you learn about, um, you know, quantum physics. It, and even honestly, even evolution and natural selection and these kind of things, um, it really speaks to... The idea, and I know that people, you know, anyone who's listening to this who doesn't necessarily uh, identify with a religion might dispute me here, Um, but it doesn't seem to me. I can't wrap my head around the fact that something like this, that the world that we live in, that the intricacies of the natural world can come to fruition completely spontaneously without any sort of you know, mm-hmm. a divine guiding hand. And if they were, then, you know, it's, again, again, like people will say, like, okay, you know, it's the, just the way that the earth formed in, in relation to the sun, right? Like we're in a particular place in the universe at a particular distance from a gigantic star and the minerals that we need just happen to be in the, in the right place at the right time. And, right. And that's just the beginning of it, right? Um, and if you look at just how every cell in your body just looking from a biological standpoint, every cell in your body is like an individual unit, right? And you're made up of billions of cells. Well, not probably more than billions. That's probably the wrong number. Um, And in fact, did you know that the bacterial cells in your body outnumber the human cells in your body Wow. in terms of raw counts? And so we are a mess of human cells and bacterial cells that are all working together to you know, give us this coherent thought and this reflective capabilities. And you know, in when it comes to the connection between my academic background and Islam and my political and social beliefs, um, I think it just speaks to the synergy. I think it's all connected. Studying the natural sciences brought me a lot closer to Islam and to God um, and to belief in you know the higher power, and that is what brought me closer to, you know, politics and left-wing activism and uh, socialism. Because to me, that is an essential part of operationalizing um, that Islam because of the deep, deep commitment to justice and human rights in Islam. And I don't think it's possible to call yourself a practicing Muslim unless you are on the right side of social justice and unless you are on the right side of human rights. just because it is such an integral part of the faith that you can't have one without the other.
1: So tell us a little bit about you know what the the scriptural source is for that. You know what what part of the faith mandates that as you say that kind of political viewpoint.
2: Sure. So there's there's really countless connections between you know Islam and socialism and really the social honestly like a social welfare state in general. The early Islamic governments um, immediately after the death of the Prophet and, and, and even while the Prophet was um, the leader of the Islamic society, uh Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he was alive, they're really the earliest some of the earliest examples of like strong social welfare states, in fact, when the Prophet was alive, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and that just means peace be upon him, right. and it's a sign of respect that whenever we mention the Prophet, we we say, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, peace be upon him. Right. And so when he was still alive the public treasury almost did not exist. Why? Because the revenue or anything that was gained by the state was immediately redistributed to the people who needed it the most. So much so that there was barely any public treasury at all because anything that came in was immediately redistributed back to the community. And later on, you know, after his death and then various you know, khalifas took over, um, and the Treasury expanded because of increasing revenues as the early, you know, Islamic states spread throughout the region, um, social welfare programs, pensions, income assistance for the poor, elderly, orphans, you know, widows, people with disabilities, they all became a part of the state. Um, and there was also orders to, you know, stockpile for emergencies. Um, and what you really see is like, a if, you know, people were hired to um, be helpers for disabled people who are paid for by the government of the time. Um, and so what you see is a really strong social tradition of, of, of socialism or socialism like policies and democratic socialism and just that welfare state. And, and you know what, like, it's important to note that although what I'm describing sounds like, you know, utopic, um, in some ways, um, and, and even though it's the, the, um, some of the earliest caliphs, including Muhammad himself, they lived in tents just like everyone else. Um, such that when other leaders came to visit from like different lands, and they, you know they came in, they're like you know who's your leader? Um, they couldn't tell the difference between the caliph and the common wow. man, right? They weren't walking up to a palace; they were walking into a you know a tent city or you know a bunch of tents, and they were like, wait, this guy is your this is, this guy is your caliph. This is your leader. This is your Caliph. He's he's no different from the other guy. And in fact, like I um, like it it really was that they couldn't tell the difference between the Khalifa and the guy sitting next to him. Like they would walk into a tent and see, you know, a number of people and they wouldn't be able to tell who the leader was.
1: Wow. No, no trappings of wealth.
2: No, not at all. Um, But that being said, where I was going with this is that it wasn't a classless society by any means, right? It wasn't a perfectly equal society. There was a stratification of wealth. Absolutely. There was rich people, there was poor people, um, there was needy people, there was, you know, people with disabilities who couldn't work. Well, alongside there was people who were extremely rich, extremely, extremely rich traders, um, absolutely, like, economically very successful, um, wealth beyond anybody's wildest dreams. But together they lived in the society under islam and they made it work to the best of their abilities right such that when the the caliph like for example um a lot of these stories about this uh about the caliphate are from Omar, Radiallahu ta'ala anha which is another um when i say that it is another uh what's the wording like phrase of respect right to the right. companions of the prophet we say radiyallahu ta'ala anha um and so he used to do, like, patrols of the um, of the kingdom. And when he would do patrols of the kingdom, remember how I said, you know, people couldn't tell the Khalifa mm-hmm. from the common man? So because there was no, you know, social media or, the you know, CNN blasting pictures of, you know, he didn't do press <laughs> briefings like Andrew Cuomo. Um, people literally didn't know what the Khalifa, what the Caliph looked like. And so when he would do patrols, people would talk to him or he would talk to people and they wouldn't even know they were talking to the leader of the entire state. So, you know, there's stories of he would, he would see poor people, right, begging, um, and including like, and Muslims and non Muslims, right, because they live together in, in harmony in these states. Um, and there's a particular incident that I was reading about just recently where um, Umar, radiallahu ta'ala, anha, who was uh, one of the caliphs after the Prophet, um, he, he encountered an elderly Jewish man. Who was begging. You know, he was down on his luck. He had lost his money or he had become old and unable to earn means or something like that. But either way, here he was in like a destitute situation, right? And, you know, Umar ta'ala, anha, found him begging and he immediately took him to the treasury and, you know, loaded him up with like clothes, food, anything else that he needed, um, and set him up with, you know, the social. Supports that he needed. And he specifically said, um, I don't know the exact quote, but off the top of my head, but he said, like, you know, this is an old Jewish man um, who has lived in our kingdom or who has lived in the Islamic State for, you know, his whole life and he's paid taxes his whole life. And I cannot bear, like, the injustice of having him beg on our streets after he's paid so much into the social system. We can't have him like this in our kingdom. We can't have people like this. And so it it really pained him to his heart to see this, you know, the taxpayer um, in a destitute situation who had made contributions to society his whole life. So, yeah, that was a little bit all over the place. but.
1: No, 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 it's the, you know, the lessons for today are, are, are so clear and, and the path to you having your views now are, are, are very clear. Yeah. So can I ask, I think our listeners are probably a pretty thoughtful bunch and probably a lot of readers, you know, beyond the primary sources, and maybe we just need to go to the, the primary sources, but are there uh, articles or books that you would suggest to us? And I can always link to them in the show notes too. Oh,
2: um, there actually is not, honestly. Um, that I know of off the top of my head that link like Islam to socialism or Islam to the political left. Um and honestly I think this is why it's uh it's such a salient topic to be discussing. Um and 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 I think it really speaks to the to the inextricable linking between Islam and and socialism in that the primary sources mm-hmm. that being the Quran and the hadith um the hadith being the um you know sayings and and life of the Prophet وسلم, and his companions um that okay. is enough to draw that link because there's so many different hadith and different things in the in the Quran and in the hadith that that c- clearly point to you know that the goal of the society being like how can we provide for the needs of every the needs of everyone right and how can we create a more just society and you know the Quran itself says like um act for justice or work towards justice, even if it means, excuse me, um, uh, work towards justice, even if it means, wow, uh, justice against yourself. And that's, that's clearly in the scripture, like work for justice, even if it's against your own self, always work for justice. Um, And so any step we take towards a more socialist society is taking a a step towards that goal of being able to provide for everyone's needs. Um, And it's, it's, it's just really clear as day. It's almost hard to uh, feel that we need somebody to interpret it further than that.
1: And as you know, you and I have had the conversation but in the religious, uh, religious, Religion and Socialism blog. We have included a couple of profiles of folks who are Muslim who, who like you, uh, feel that the, the, the faith is completely connected to socialism. And we'll, we can link to those um, interviews as well. And, and those folks, uh, they they point to zakat. They they that the the because so you could explain that again. I think uh, for non-Muslims, we have a little bit of an idea about zakat, but not probably not a, a complete understanding. How how would you describe that for for non-Muslim listener, listeners?
2: Absolutely. So um, in a nutshell, zakat is like a, a wealth tax. Basically, um, it's two point five percent of your wealth um, above a, th- above a certain threshold. Um, and I'm forgetting the exact threshold right now. It's some, some, diff- some grams of silver or something like that. And so you pay 2.5% of your wealth towards charity and the charity has specific bounds, which, which can be looked up. I just sure. don't want to say anything wrong about what, what the specific bounds are of, of the charity. Um, but it's, it's, as you would expect, you know, feeding the hungry, et cetera, freeing prisoners, you know, helping people in dire straits, as well as, um, some of the zakat its, it's interesting. Uh, some of the zakat can also be used to pay the people who are distributing the zakat. So, uh um, sure. that's Social all worked servants, in there, right? As well. The
1: public servants need to be eat too, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, some of your zakat, which you're paying out of a religious obligation, can be used to pay the people who are distributing the zakat itself, which is nice. Um, but in a nutshell, it's a two point five percent wealth tax, essentially. That you pay on your liquid assets, so like any cash you have in the bank, um, uh, certain investments that you have—not all investments—I think some investments are um, exempt from the tax, um, but others are
1: not. And again, those folks have have discussed with us the the notion that in, in Islam, uh, there there's a strong push towards natural resources being. Communal goods, which of course is, is a core concept of socialism as well can can you talk a little bit about that about access to water, about access to uh, energy
2: yeah, absolutely. So immediately uh, there's two things that come to mind um, one of them was um, there's an incident in the um, in the life of and I hope I'm right about this. Um, you know, Allah, forgive me if I'm wrong. Um, so please look it up. Um, I'm considering, a, I'm thinking of an incident in the life of Ali, radiallahu ta'ala, anha, um, in which he allowed, um, an army to cross through the river, right. an, an enemy army, um, to cross through the river because, um, when, when previously they had not been letting his army cross the river. Okay. Previously, they had kept control of the river and they said, like, this is our river. You can't cross here. You can't come into the river. You can't access its resources. None of that.
1: And that was the only source for fresh water in in the area, correct?
2: I believe so. Um, And also, it it was an important transport, you know, boundary. Um, And he, he allowed them to go through because he said, you know, it's not once once he took over the area, he said, you know, it's not my river. It's the river belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so um, it really speaks to natural resources being for everyone. And also, um, I think it was um, the caliphate of Umar. But again, it it could have been somewhat another one. But um, he also did a lot of irrigation projects, um, which, of course, redistributed the the wealth of water um, to Anyone in society who wanted it basically right. who or who could access it right um so that they could increase their farming um, and their agriculture output, and you know there was no like you know you can you can have some irrigation products and you can't um and so that that irrigation was made available to everyone almost as like as a public service also I'm thinking of like there's a there's a hadith that says like you know when you're making wulu, like the ablution, don't waste water, even if you're in a flowing river, right? Even if you're making it in a, in a river outside. Um, and then I think one of the companions is an extension to that. One of the companions asked him, like, why? It's just, it's a river, right? Like, it's almost like infinite water. Um, and the Prophet ﷺ said, yes, but the river doesn't belong to only you. There's other people down, like other, the creatures will use the will use the water if you don't. Um, and so there was that always that concern for for the entire the whole environment when um, when 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 just considering our interactions with the natural world. And so there is a lot of um, connection there between natural resource utilization um, and and then being communal, not only between people, but also between like people and animals um, and you know people and creatures um, who are not human. And so, there's that that spirit exists um, through, throughout the religion.
1: And and you say that it's so clear to you that the the tenets of socialism line up so nicely with the the tenets of Islam. But of course, that's not everyone's view. And and, and here in uh, in North America, in particular, there's there's a pretty significant divide between young people's view of socialism and capitalism and, and older folks view of socialism and capitalism. And, and I, I don't know if our listeners know this, but you're, uh, you're a young man. I assume you're in your twenties. Is that, is that right? Yep. I am. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. Okay. In 20s. <laughs> um, and so do you, is that kind of divide between, uh, younger person's view of socialism, um, and older folks, is that held true within the Muslim community as well?
2: You know, it's hard for me to say. Um, but I don't think like I think it, this is a conversation in that that's more broad than 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 you know uh, that's more broad than Muslims right. and eh, like within the Muslim community, right? I think this is a conversation that is a more applicable broadly. Um, but I, I I really think that people are in favor of socialism and socialist ideas. Um, they just don't they just don't necessarily know that they are in a lot of ways and it should be mentioned right like i think like the commitment to islam and socialism is very clear um and it's 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 made even more clear by the fact that we can see the failings of the capitalist society um, that we live in and you know maybe somebody will point to the fact that you know in the prophet's time there was not like like communism and it's not like the state owned all goods and you know the prophet, the prophet himself sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a trader he was a businessman um and his wife, his first wife, Khadija, was one of the richest and most powerful businesswoman in their society. It, well, she was like man or woman. She was one of the most powerful and richest people in their society. Um, and she made that fortune by, you know, business and trade. Um, but socialism is not necessarily antithetical to, right, you know, small businesses or people, right. you know, going about their daily life. And so I think And it's interesting. um, Another connection between Islam and socialism is that they're both dirty words that are smeared by the media and, you know, the establishment. And I think I think it's a lot to do. A lot of it just has to do with the smearing um, and what people take up the smears and what don't. And I don't think it's exclusive to Muslims or non-Muslims that, you know, they take up that smear and they think, oh, socialism is bad. But then they turn around and they, they read the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, which says, you know, if one part of the body aches, Lord, my, my ummah, my, the Muslim ummah is like one body. When one part of the body aches, the whole body aches. And so it, it's really the same thing here, right? Like one part of the society is aching and our whole society should be aching and working to make sure that that part of the body is taken care of. And if we just look at it logically, you know, capitalism and our profit-driven society, um, the society of greed is not fulfilling those commitments. And so we need to take steps towards an alternative way. And I think that if uh, the prophet and his companions were alive today, um, and I don't want to, I hope this is not, um, you know, blasphemous in any way, but I think that he would, he would be in favor of whatever it takes to make society more just and a more uh, a, a society that takes care of everyone.
1: Well, as you, as you say, the uh, his words and, and the words of his followers make that very clear. I, the, you make a really interesting point about that both Islam and socialism are somewhat condemned by folks who just are reacting to some kind of image, and in fact they would Uh, Embrace the the message of of Islam, like they embrace the the core of socialism. If they just understood them to to be just that, right? That uh, we're we're talking about equitable uh, distribution of goods. We're talking about people getting healthcare and and housing that they need, et cetera. Which most folks are are in favor of. uh, Before you put the labels on, you've also written about Islamophobia, which of course is is an enormous problem in our time, uh, in North America and beyond. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've, what you've written on, on that topic and and what the, the lessons are for folks that aren't Muslim, uh, out there in our community?
2: Sure. So really, I think the first thing that we need to recognize, um, is that Islamophobia is a systemic project, right? Much like other forms of systemic discrimination, um, whether it's like, you know, anti-black racism or otherwise, it's perpetuated by power structures that seek to enforce a status quo, right? People in positions of power um, literally pump hundreds of millions of dollars into projects to stoke Islamophobia in Western or global North countries. And that's a fact. You can look it up.
1: And by, by projects, Iman, you mean uh, public relations efforts or or what, what do you mean by that? So by projects
2: like Islamophobia projects, I mean things like um, groups that are promoting Islamophobia. And so, you know, they're really sneaky about it. They take the groups that are already doing the work of Islamophobia and they fund them, whether it's and and, and the groups come in many different forms, right? Whether it's like lobbyist groups or.
1: Or Breitbart News or something like that, right?
2: Breitbart News, exactly all of that stuff. Or they fund like commentators on Fox mm-hmm. or they fund commentators in other like European right wing networks. And they say, you know, like here here's a little bit of extra cash. Um, just keep doing what you're doing, as long as you keep on the message of Islamophobia. And so it's 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 a really insidious uh Project that's 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 really the best word I can think of for it that farms out Islamophobia into different groups to 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 allow it to take root into society. Um, And and again, this is totally something you can look up. And also here I have some, uh, you know, you can read the writing of different scholars in the field of Islamophobia, um, like Hatim Bazian, who is has been often labeled, you know, the most dangerous professor in America, as you know, most uh, left wing thinkers and Muslims, and people who don't agree with
1: badge of honor, the status quo right? yeah, label. Yeah.
2: Exactly. He wears it as a badge, <laughs> of, badge of honor, um, and I completely agree with that. Um, so you can look up like uh, the writing of Hadzim Bazian, uh, Dr. Dalia Fahmy, um, D-A-L-I-A-F-A-H-M-Y, um, and others. Um, and there's also the organizations that they run. Um or that they helped run and contribute to which are totally escaping me right now. And also there's readings by um you can read writings by um Joram, okay, I'm totally going to butcher his name, but I'm it's like Joram van Claveren, who is a former um, virulent Islamophobe and architect of Islamophobia in in uh, in Holland. He's Dutch. Um, and he he was a politician and he ran on you know islamophobia as part of his platform you know get rid of all the muslims like we don't want their mosques in in our in our country and things like that and you know when he learned more about islam he actually converted to islam and oh, he's a muslim wow. now and oh. he and he exposes islamophobic projects because he he knows he was there right. and he says like yeah when i was an islamophobe and when i you know when i was a part of that system that perpetuated islamophobia for political and economic gains um i used to do this too so he he exposes Islamophobia kind of from the inside. And so when I think about Islamophobia, you can think about it like it's, I think Islamophobia is unique, right? In the sense that it since especially since 9-11, um, it presents a group of people as strange and the other. And, you know, I don't know, perhaps uniquely, the reality is and I guess like it, it, this is shared in common with like, I guess, a lot of immigrants in general. Um, we kind of are strangers um and you know in the hadith the prophet said like you know um islam will always be a strange religion like it will always be or there were or sorry he didn't say there will always he said um i believe it's something like there will come a time when and somebody can fact check me on this to get the full proper hadith but to paraphrase he said there will be there will come a time when um you know islam will be strange and it will be, a, you know, not accepted by society, the mainstream of society, and blessed be the strangers. Oh. Um, and so, you know, we're very much in that time period right now, um, where we do have customs and traditions, um, that are really unlike anything else, right? There's nothing like the Muslim prayer, um, the physicality of it, the the unity of it, where you can get you know, hundreds of people together to do actions and 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 face one direction mm-hmm. and you know worship one god in this way um actually I'll I'll just, I'll just give you one example okay um I was I went to Spain last summer I believe um on a tour of to understand the islamic history of spain um and so uh, during the inquisitions um you know when they eradicated the muslims from spain um who were ruling spain for some time In peace with other religions, and this is a whole other like I love this topic. Um, But one of the things that they did to make sure that Islam was completely and totally eradicated from the area was that they opened bars on every street corner. Oh wow! And they had people hang, you know, pork like dead pigs in their windows, right? And what do you see today in Spain? Well, you see bars on every street corner. Oh. And a lot of butcher shops are still hanging those pigs. And so a lot of the, you know, alcohol permissive culture of Europe comes from like a an anti-Muslim culture, actually. Um, to say like this is, you know, it's exactly like it is now, like however many centuries ago that was, like, you know, this is Europe, right? Like we don't live in this is not Turkey, this is not, you know, the Ottoman Empire, this is Europe. Here we drink alcohol. That's what we do. So if you're not drinking alcohol, you're not a part of this culture. You better go to every single bar on the street corner.
1: <laughs> and your point is, that right? was not an accident. This is not. Uh, this is not something that sprung up organically.
2: Exactly, that's what I'm saying. And so, um, Islam ends up being antithetical to Western culture, and it's and it's exactly, it's not an accident necessarily. Um, and 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 by extension, almost by extension, right? Like right now, what we see is Islam is 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 a lot antithetical to what a lot of capitalism claims to be about, right? Um, and again like this is a whole other article um and i think our listeners to the religious socialism podcast will be familiar with this but a lot of what capitalism does is that it 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 seeks to usurp the place of religion mm-hmm. in that it it replaces you know faith in god or faith in a higher power with a faith in consumerism right. and efficiency and innovation and so the idea that somebody would take breaks you know five times a day to reflect on, you know, their place in society as a greater, as part of a greater coalition, um, as a part of a the fact that you're a servant of God, not a servant of a capitalism, a, a capitalist um, or, a, or a factory owner is antithetical to capitalism in itself. Um, and so unlike a lot of groups, a lot of people legitimately don't know about Islam. And on top of people not knowing about Islam to begin with, there's a targeted misinformation campaign against us, against the religion, um, to scapegoat us, to enforce the status quo, etc. Right. And so if there's really one solution, and I talk about this um, in my writings, it's education, right? It's to dispel the myths and misunderstandings uh, about Islam and show people the truth and also just like build an acceptance of the fact that we don't live in a melting pot, right? Everybody has their own cultures and traditions, and it's important that we respect that, but that's kind of the society that we live in right right where much like socialism islam is, is has this targeted misinformation campaign against it against powerful people and um, education and teaching people what Islam is actually about and what socialism is actually about is uh, an important way to fight Islamophobia and uh socialism phobia at the same time right
1: well, and that's what you're doing right thank you for for having this conversation with us today <laughs> and and. We have limited time left, but I cannot let you go without asking you about being a medical student in a time of pandemic, about being a medical student in the nation of Canada, which has a very different and uh, much better healthcare system than the U.S. does, but obviously, like any system, has some challenges right now, especially. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what you've observed about what's led us to this pandemic and and how we're responding to it as as a person who's inside the system now, the healthcare system.
2: Sure. So I think there's a lot of lessons and I don't necessarily think that you need to be a medical student to see them um, or in the system. Um, Although I will say that being a medical student, I'll just preface this by saying that being a medical student and working in the medical system um, has allowed me the great privilege of seeing the plights of, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Um, and having the privilege of working with them and advocating for them, which as a side note has, you know, increased my commitment to both Islam and socialism.
1: Just, just seeing the deficiencies of the capitalist system and especially the capitalist approach to healthcare, that's just cemented your views.
2: Yeah. And I think like it's, 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 it's not necessarily like the, I mean, cause in, in Canada, we don't really have much of a capitalist view of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, thankfully, Although it should be said that you know a study recently came out um, a few days ago actually that uh, for-profit long-term care homes had worse outcomes than the government-run oh. ones, i.e., like more deaths in this pandemic. And so yeah, regardless, like so, working with people and you know seeing some of the failures of capitalism to provide for them, and you know just just how people slip through the cracks, and and it's not all like capitalism's fault per se. Some of it is like Structural problems that I feel like perhaps you know we've just created this system that's what's the word for it It's almost like it's a lot of bureaucracy mm-hmm. and it's not universal and it's not simplified in a way that it could be um but that's just a product of like decades and decades of adding you know half measures and bureaucratic and you know means testing things so I guess in a in a sense it is sort of capitalism but I don't think it's fair to just say, "Oh, the problem is capitalism. Period." Mm-hmm. and then leave it at that. Um so there is some nuance there. Regardless, um back to like the lessons. It really is, I think that the lesson of the pandemics in general is that we need to take care of people who are, you know, most vulnerable in our society. And we need to start judging ourselves, judging our societies, right? By the weakest links in that society, mm-hmm. we're only as strong as the people who are most vulnerable among us.
1: And viruses teach us that, don't
2: they? Exactly, exactly. Um, because if 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 the people at the bottom fail, um, or if they become infected, or if you know you make them come to work, um, and we have a we have a premier in Ontario who is like a, a premier is like a governor of a state. Um, a premier is the governor of the province, right. um, and we have a premier here who's a. Is a conservative premier, and he one of the first things he did when he came into power was scrap the labor laws put in place by the previous premier, which guaranteed like paid sick leave and things like that. Um and so if we have a society where people don't have guaranteed paid sick leave, you know, they're gonna be coming to work and they're gonna be infecting people. And if we lose them, we lose the essential workers, quote unquote essential workers, right? right? And then where whole society collapses, and that's not it's not a good time to put it bluntly. And I think another Another lesson, in addition to that, is the need to listen to the experts um, in these situations, right? If you had listened to a lot of the physicians um, and the public health experts, right, they would have told you that it's time to sound the alarm and put in, you know, social distancing measures and, you know, close the borders and things like that earlier to prevent the spread of this illness. But there's always that reluctance, right? Um, and I I can almost, I don't know, I can almost guarantee that unless the next pandemic comes like fairly quickly, we will see that same reluctance again in a different era.
1: Well, we're seeing it now in the U.S. for, for just maintaining what we know to be right, right? Keeping shut down, people want to. People are insisting on their constitutional right to go get a haircut, whether the virus is going to infect folks or not. Right. Yep. And,
2: and we have that here too. Um, protesters out and about, but they're not nearly as uh, loud and militant as they are in, uh, in Michigan and other places. But, uh, I think it's, uh, it's really an exercise in, you know, believing in things that you don't necessarily want to hear too. Um, right. And I think that's, uh, <laughs> you see it all comes back right we we all we came back full circle right It's about having faith in our experts right um just like we have faith in our in our religious principles right sometimes we if you believe in you know a religion, sometimes there's parts of that religion that you know that strike you as something that you don't that doesn't that you know makes you uncomfortable. let's put it that way, but as a adherent of that religion, you kind of have to you know, work that into your paradigm because you agree with, you know, the rather 99% of it. And so, um, and again, people will disagree with me on that as well, but that's my view. Um, And so here we need to, you know, have faith that these doctors who study public health and who study epidemiology have studied their whole life. They're prepared for this moment. Um, And when they say things that make us uncomfortable, like, okay, we're going to have to close the barbershops, um, to make sure people don't you know get this virus and ends up killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, especially old people like our grandparents and the people who are most vulnerable in society, maybe we need to listen to them, but uh, we'll see what happens for the next pandemic because you know what there's another one coming without a doubt, um, as sure as death and taxes and so um, we'll see um if, if we learned our lesson
1: well and the the lessons of of maybe a little bit of self denial and being community oriented uh those are lessons from islam and socialism right
2: absolutely and i think um a lot of the projects that have been going i use the word projects a lot i find um but um you know when uh when the government is overburdened as well right not only when the government is failing to act but when they're overburdened a lot of that a lot of what needs to be done falls on the community right And so what we're seeing is a lot of, um, you know, a birth of projects of people caring for one another in ways that they did not previously do so. Right. Um, For example, people set up uh, call lines to check in on isolated seniors. And that's wonderful. But isolated seniors are isolated when there's pandemics and when there isn't. And so when we need so we need to consider like, okay, after this pandemic is done, what about isolated seniors? What are we going to do to support them um, other than just, you know, Trace their contacts and keep them away from the hospital. And uh, and yeah, so like other things that we're doing is, um, uh, you know, I was involved in a project to uh, um, help risk stratify the the homeless population in Toronto called the Care Project. It was a really good experience, and I think they're doing good work. And so really, the point I'm making here is that all of these are community initiatives, and sometimes it's it's not enough to just rely on the state. Um, and we really need to take um that 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 socialist spirit and that religious spirit of community and um, working together to find solutions to protect the most vulnerable in our society and just build a better society in general um, into our own hands um, and we don 't need to wait for a pandemic to organize right
1: that. that's that 's a terrific point iman that and again it 's a lesson of both Islam and socialism that the Caring for others doesn't have to always be at a state level, right? That we do this at, at a community and at a small group level and, and small ass socialism. And and uh, uh, the, the lessons of Islam are that we need to care for those around us in our neighborhood, our community, our our congregation, what have you.
2: That's right. And, and the hope is that it trickles upwards, right? Um, uh, a small preview of my article, that my next article for religious socialism, right, is that we need to have like a a spiritual spiritually centered activism right and then we need to hope that that trickles up into putting in you know leaders who are elected um who who also have that same spirit right um so the community organizers of today need to be our uh, elected leaders and you know political leaders of tomorrow who are making the policy that can codify you know all this caring spirit that we have
1: on the ground that's beautifully put well i will say thank you for for plugging your your next article for the religioussocialism.org blog which we will be pushing out and there is another article by iman already up about the lessons that that ramadan has for left activists which are some terrific points about self sacrifice and discipline and and uh, not necessarily getting results uh, immediately so so I'm going to urge folks to check that out um and and Mon, this has just been terrific. I want to encourage our listeners to look to google you and and look on our website religioussocialism.org, for some of your articles, but you got many articles that are out there beyond that, and I know they're going to be you're going to be publishing things beyond our our site as well so um urge folks to check that out. And then when you get a break from your your medical studies, we need to set you up with a, a website of your own, right? To send people to, to to collect all your things together. But Google does a lot of that for us, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's uh definitely something I need to work on. I <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something I need to work on let's just leave it. at You're that. You're a little busy
1: helping save lives in a pandemic. So we appreciate you uh, we we hope you stay safe we hope you stay healthy and we know our frontline providers are, are particularly vulnerable right now so so thank you for that Thank you for you you made the point today that the the answer to misunderstandings about Islam and misunderstandings about socialism is in large part education and you've provided a lot of that for us today so, So thank you for joining
2: us. No worries. Thank you.
0: This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.